As you may have heard somewhere, I don't know where, a time or two, my new book, Medgar and Murley, The Love Story That Awakened America, is coming out in just two weeks. And that means I, of course, am hitting the road. I will be in Evers' hometown of Jackson, Mississippi, at the Civil Rights Museum on Tuesday, February 13th at 6 p.m. On February 15th, I'll be at Pomona College in Claremont, California at 7 p.m. And on February 26th, I'll be at Politics and Prose in Washington, D.C. at 7 p.m. Be sure to go to msnbc.com slash Medgar and Murley to get your tickets and the full tour schedule. If you're a Barnes and Noble member, be sure to go to barnesandnoble.com and pre-order your copy between now and January 26th to get a cute 25% off. We love a discount. We are continuing to follow the dramatic breaking news out of a New York City courtroom that has likely put a damper on Donald Trump's weekend. A nine-member jury has reached its verdict in Trump's second defamation trial, brought by writer E. Jean Carroll. The unanimous verdict, Donald Trump is on the hook for just over $83 million in damages, $83.3 million to be exact. It took just less than three hours of deliberation by the jury to come to that verdict, which includes $11 million for damages to her reputation, 73, 7.3 million for emotional harm and other damages and a whopping 65 million in punitive damages. It's a huge increase from the $5 million verdict a separate jury awarded Carol last year after finding Trump liable for sexually assaulting and defaming her. Now this is the part where if you've got kiddos in the room, you might want to cover their little ears because I think it's important to remind you that Ms. Carol's case goes back to the 1990s. And she accused Trump of doing exactly what he said on that infamous Access Hollywood tape, where he said, when you're a star, they let you grab women by the, you remember the rest. Ms. Carroll told a jury that he did exactly that to her, forcibly putting his tiny fingers into her against her will in the dressing room of a New York City department store. I'm sorry to be so blunt, but I think sometimes we forget what we're talking about here, a.k.a. sexual assault. And then he serially defamed her. A previous New York jury ruled that, yes, he did both. And then he defamed her again and again and again, leading her to sue him again and leading us to where we stand today. And a reminder, the man found civilly liable for doing these things to E. Jean Carroll is the all but certain Republican nominee for president. Okay, you can take your hands off your kiddos' ears. Ms. Carroll was in the courtroom this evening to hear the verdict, and she released this statement, quote, This is a great victory for every woman who stands up when she's been knocked down, and a huge defeat for every bully who has tried to keep a woman down. However, Trump had already left the court before, it, before the verdict was reached. Just minutes after the verdict was read, Trump took to social media, calling the verdict absolutely ridiculous and claiming that the courts have taken away all First Amendment rights. That is not true, of course. Earlier today, Trump's lawyer, Alina Haba, was corrected by the judge during her closing arguments for also confusing what the First Amendment protects. The judge, Lewis Kaplan, said, and I will quote, one has a constitutional right to some kinds of speech and not others. And that would include defamatory statements like the ones her client repeatedly made against Carol up to and during the trial, including posting more than a dozen attacks on social media during today's closing arguments. The question remains, 
Is the amount high enough to keep Trump from continuing his attacks against E. Jean Carroll? Or will he be back in a courtroom again for a third defamation trial? I'm joined now by NBC and MSNBC reporter Adam Reese, Glenn Kirshner, former federal prosecutor and an MSNBC legal analyst, April Ryan, MSNBC contributor and White House correspondent for The Grio, and Reverend Al Sharpton, host of Politics Nation and president of the National Action Network. Thank you all for being here. Adam, uh, describe the scene in the court uh, today as this verdict was read. Well, Joy, it was swift and decisive, and it came in less than three hours. They knew they wanted to get through this and get it over with, and it was all coming after the closing arguments. It was a tale of two realities in the 26th floor courtroom. E. Jean Carroll's attorney, Roberta Kaplan, telling her story that Mr. Trump, even to this day, continues to defame E. Jean Carroll, dating all the way back to June 21st, 2019, at the White House, defaming her, calling her a, a wacko, a sick job, um, that he didn't know who she was, that she wasn't his type. She went on and on and on. It, it, he just couldn't handle it. He was so furious. He stood up and he stormed out of the courtroom with his Secret Service agents chasing him. At that point, E. Jean Carroll's attorney, Roberta Kaplan, was able to play the tape from the attorney general's case, which is still going on. And that deposition, he is bragging. He's talking about how rich he is. He says, I have $400 million in cash. The Doral is worth $2.5 billion. Mar-a-Lago is worth $1.5 billion. Essentially, I'm worth $14 billion. And she said to the jurors, you need to make him pay. You need to hit him in the pocketbook. He needs to know that he can't do this anymore. And for her part, Alina Haba, trying to defend Mr. Trump, doing the best she could with what she had. She said, E. Jean Carroll is loving this. She's adoring the fame. She's, you know, she has more followers now. She's making money. She's hitting the nightlife scene in New York City. And to that, on rebuttal, E. Jean Carroll's attorney says, do you really think E. Jean Carroll is loving this? Do you think she likes the death threats, the rape threats by the thousands? And Mr. Trump continues to do this, even last night, issuing a videotape statement saying, I don't know who this woman is. I have no idea who she is. Joy? Uh, horrifying. But thank you for all those details. Uh, just one more one more detail I'm going to ask you for, Adam Reese. Did, we know that E. Jean Carroll did walk out of the courtroom um, what was her demeanor like? Uh, you know, what was kind of her demeanor throughout the case when the jury verdict was read and then when she walked out of that courtroom? She maintains her in integrity. She's poised. She came to court every day, poised. Uh, when the verdict was read, they all they all held hands. All the attorneys in E. Jean Carroll held hands. Afterwards, they all came out. They stood arm to arm, shoulder to shoulder in victory. Adam Reese, thank you so much. We really appreciate you being in that courtroom for us day after day after day, making sure that we knew what was happening in that trial. Thank you, my friend. Much appreciated. Uh, let me come to the panel, um, because I think it's so important. I'm going to play this tape again, because we played it before, but I think it's important just to remember that Donald Trump has admitted that and bragged that this is something he thinks that he can do. What he what he was adjudicated to have done to E. Jean Carroll is something that he doesn't hide the fact that he thinks he's entitled to do. Here are two tapes that you guys, uh, I think, need to watch for context in on today. Donald Trump, the Access Hollywood tape, Donald Trump in his deposition in the first trial again uh, that E. Jean Carroll brought, the first case E. Jean Carroll brought. 
You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the <laughs> I can do anything. That's true with stars. It's true with stars that, that they can grab women by the Well, that's what, it's, if you look over the last million years, I guess that's been largely true. Not always, but largely true. Unfortunately or fortunately. And you consider yourself uh, to be a star? I think you can say that, yeah. I'm going to go to uh, the, the, the lady on my panel in the middle there, April Ryan, first. Because, I mean, the, the, the reality is this man said that and then became the president of the United States. Uh, I just want you, as somebody who's actually absorbed his attacks and knows what he's like up close, to just give me your thoughts on that, the fact that he became president, and the fact that he is poised to be the Republican nominee again? One, uh, we forgot the tic-tac, how he uses a tic-tac before he goes in on women. That was part of the that, uh, that infamous tape, if you will. It is sickening to hear as a woman, um, taking the journalist hat off, but at humanity right here, as a woman, it's sickening to hear. Um, he views women, particularly pretty women as a piece of meat because he's a quote unquote celebrity reality show celebrity and someone who has trademarked and branded his name. Um, as someone who has taken the heat and continues to absorb the heat from the quote unquote minions who live in their mother's basement, I think of two pieces of today's uh, verdict by the jury who showed that no man is or woman is above the law. The $11 million for punitive damages, excuse me, the $11 million for, to repair her uh, reputation. Reputation. That's not, mm -hmm. that's not even enough. That's not even enough because once Donald Trump puts his name, puts your name in his mouth, it's over. Your attack, death threats, et cetera. You move your home. Your life is not the same. You know, $11 million is nothing. But that $65 million for punitive damages to punish, to show that he is a poor, he has done so many things wrong, he has uh, defamed her to, to make him hurt. And for him to stand up and walk out of that courtroom having an adult temper tantrum, he is hurting. Now, the question is, will he have to pay this after appeal? I talked to Armstrong Williams today, who was once in that Trump circle. He said what he's going to pay is no attention. To this amount of money. Let, let me actually bring Glenn in on that, because the question is, if, if he owed, if he was a regular, ordinary American who owed child support or who mm. owed their taxes, the government would just take the money. <laughs> but he's Donald Trump. How does E. Jean Carroll get the money she is entitled to? Good news. Um, it is that there are appeal bonds that can be put in place to make sure there is a pot of money there to satisfy this $83 million damages award that the jury just handed down at the end of the appeals process. And we all know the appeals process can take some time. But, you know, unlike when somebody is putting up a bond to, to try to get out on bail, ordinarily they have to put up maybe 10 percent of whatever it is the court is ordering by way of bail. However, when it comes to an appeals bond, Joy, ordinarily 
the overwhelming majority of appeals and civil suits are affirmed. So that makes this um, really challenging for Donald Trump. In order to get an appeal bond, he very likely will have to put up most or all of the $83 million so that there is a pot of money that can be paid to E. Jean Carroll at the end of the appeals process. He'll have to put it up either in cash. And wasn't he just bragging that he has four hundred million dollars on hand? I'm betting he doesn't. Or he'll have to put it up with unencumbered property. And I can only wonder how much equity he actually has in some of the properties he owns. So you know what? There is going to be a pot of money. And E. Jean Carroll's lawyers have been determined. They've been dogged. And they're going to continue to fight to make sure this appropriate money judgment gets satisfied. Uh, th- that is uh, actually good news and good to know. Uh, Rev, you you know this man. Uh, he has not just been accused of sexual being a sex pest by E. Jean Carroll. Um, I'm just going to put up the numbers here. The number of women who've accused him of sexual misconduct, Jessica Leeds, Kristen Anderson, Jill Hart, E. Jean Carroll, I can go on and on and on. You go all the way down, all of those women. Here is the way that he has responded to some of those accusations. Here's Donald Trump shaming the women who have accused him. She said I made inappropriate advances. And by the way, the area was a public area, people all over the place. Take a look. You take a look. Look at her. Look at her words. You tell me what you think. I don't think so. I don't think so. When you looked at that horrible woman last night, you said, I don't think so. Oh, I was with Donald Trump in 1980. I was sitting with him on an airplane. And he went after me on the plane. Yeah, I'm going to go after. (laughs) Believe me, she would not be my first choice, that I can tell you. Man. You don't know. That would not be my first choice. Sounds like exactly what he said about E. Jean Carroll, Rev. His dehumanizing and castigating women in general is clear. I think what uh, one has to look at And me as a New Yorker that grew up in New York, as Donald Trump did, Donald Trump sold this brand that he was this brilliant businessman and that he was like the great Gatsby. I think today we're seeing where he will become more like the Wizard of Oz. When we look beyond the veil, the curtain, the wizard has no clothes because he's going to have to come up with a substantial amount of money. He's played that he's this billionaire. Well, let's see if he can post the bond. And let's not forget, on the 31st, the judge will give the amount he owes from the case that Attorney General, State Attorney General of New York, Tisha James has, where she's asking for $300 million. Say the judge gives half of that. We're talking about somewhere around a quarter of a billion dollars he's going to have to come up with. So Donald Trump will become more unhinged. He will become more desperate. We're going to see him and his followers go into the twilight zone in terms of action now, because I do not believe he has the money. And I and if he defaults, he has judgments against him. His property start getting lean. He is facing something he's never thought And his brand has been totally demolished now because the big businessman will be exposed like the Wizard of Oz to have no clothes and no way out. 
Yeah, there will be no uh, owning beauty pageants and partnering with Macy's and all of those things. Uh, and on his state of mind, what was the movie where they said, you play with my money, you play with my emotions? His emotions are about to get played with uh, in a very big way. My guests are staying with me. We'll have much more on today's stunning $83 million verdict against Donald Trump when the readout continues. Back with me, Glenn Kirshner, April Ryan, and Reverend Al Sharpton. Glenn, let, let, let's talk about this Adult Survivors Act. Uh, Kathy Hochul, Governor Kathy Hochul of New York, signed it into law in 2022. And it's actually been a boon to victims of sexual assault. Uh, more than 2,500 lawsuits filed. Uh, gives a, it gave a year for people to come in, and it, it, it got rid of uh, the, you know, the statute of limitations. E. Jean Carroll is one of the first to use it. But it's also been used by people who have accused the criminal justice system in New York. Um, uh, of them having survived rape under the criminal justice system. Some of the people who've been accused uh, include Harvey Weinstein, Sean P. Diddy Combs, Bill Cosby, Russell Brand, Rudy Giuliani. Talk about the power of this law and E. Jean's place in history, uh, E. Jean Carroll's place in history for using it this way. You know, Joy, it's so important because in sexual offense crimes, in rape cases, I, I handled rape cases, I handled uh, sexual assault of children. You know, ordinarily, people do not rush forward to share their victimization with anybody, not with law enforcement. Can you imagine being sexually assaulted and then sitting down and laying bare the experience you just went through with strangers, police officers, grand jurors, prosecutors, trial jurors in a public forum? where the audience could be packed with people who were there to support the perpetrator. Is it any wonder that people are reluctant to come forward when they have been the victim of sexual assault? And then what do they get for actually reporting and following through with a prosecution? They get raked over the coals and they get called lie a liar about what happened to them, just like E. Jean Carroll suffered? Is it any wonder there is at best delayed reporting of sexual crimes? You know, it, it's so important, I think, that we open it up and we give victims a fair opportunity to have their, victim, their victimization addressed and to have their perpetrator held accountable. So uh, and now you are seeing how it can bear fruit because Donald Trump has now been held accountable for his sexual mm -hmm. battery, which the first jury found he, in fact, committed, and for his repeated incessant defamation by lying about what he had done to E. Jean Carroll. So I applaud the state of New York and the lawmakers who saw the mm -hmm. wisdom of opening it up, op opening it up and actually supporting sexual assault victims. Indeed. And I, and I applaud E. Jean Carroll for being brave enough to step out there because she didn't just accuse some anonymous person. She accused a former president of the United States and somebody who is sort of acts like a mobster, not even sort of, who has a, a habit of behaving like a mobster and has a, a cult. So God bless her for doing that. Um, April, this is one of the largest defamation payouts. I just want to put up some of the largest defamation payouts. Alex Jones, who also has not paid his victims. Uh, Fox News, $787 million. ABC News, 177. Rudy Giuliani, $148 million for defaming Rudy, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. If Donald Trump um, paying his, it can, you know, pay after the $83 million, and then, of course, if he ends up paying some $300 million to the state of New York, if he responds to that, 
by declaring bankruptcy, which he's done multiple times. Uh, Roberta Kaplan did talk about that. Four times he's declared bankruptcy. I don't know if people would think he was such a rich and important guy if they knew how many times he was bankrupt. What do you think that does to the politics of Donald Trump if suddenly he's the bankrupt, Mm. not quite billionaire? Well, he was bankrupt in the past and came back to win and win again and win again. But this time is so public and people understand what's going on, Joy. And right now, the win has turned into a big L, loser. And he's so harsh on this brand. I am Donald Trump. I'm a winner. This is a huge loss. After that first E. Jean Carroll trial, he tried to make it out to be a joke saying, is this what I'm they're trying to get me on? And, and some of his followers believed it. But now this sends a powerful blow. His politics are still there. But he's hobbled a bit. He is hobbled a bit. And let's see what happens again and again and again with the rest of these court cases. And if yeah. he can pay, we're going to see who he is really, an adult tantrum thrower who may or may not have the money, he says, and his politics will go along with that. Is he, if he lies about this, you know, where's his politics? A bunch of lies or just a bunch of fluff? So we'll see what happens same, down the road. Same question to you, Rev. You know the guy. If Would he be able to withstand the idea? Because this isn't his companies being bankrupt. Like before, when Hillary Clinton hit him in the debates and he said, I'm smart. I use the laws as they stand. That was about his companies. This is about him having to pay this money out of his own pockets. And if it turns out he can't do it, then what? How, what's his message then? He, his brand is totally uh, uh, explodes. And I think that you've got to remember his brand is who he is. He lived his whole life. Those of us that knew him in New York, those of us that forward him on cases nationally, his whole brand was, how did he get the apprentice? I'm this great businessman. For him to now have to come forward, even if he claims bankruptcy, he will have to establish that he, in fact, does not have the money he has. He's been lying all along and he still has the problem of he has to post the bond. He can't change that. He has the bond that he's got to deal with today. If he's going to appeal, he's got the bond that he will have to deal with next week when uh, the verdict comes down on his New York state fraud trial and he can come with all he wants, he's going to have to post the bond or he has to pay the judgment. Either way, you're talking about millions and millions of dollars. And it looks like the guy that made his way to the apprentice will be the one that gets fired as a billionaire in (laughs) front of the whole world. And I think that that is what he's thinking about on his way to Las Vegas tonight. His whole image is gone. Now, he has a cult, as you say, Joy. His cult followers will be there, but his cult followers cannot come up with the sum of money he's going to have to come up with for this bond. They have to pay buy a lot of hats. Let me let me ask you. Just stay with you for just one second, Rev. I'm gonna let you in a second, April. But um, you interviewed Joe Tacapina, his former lawyer, recently uh, on your show. Uh, do you think that the fact that Donald Trump might be short on funds might have been one of the reasons that he left? He said he had to follow his his compass, but you think it could have also been that? Could have been. I don't know. I know that uh, Tacapino had been involved in many cases with us, and I think that he just saw. Uh, he said his compass, moral compass wasn't there. He saw where this was going and didn't want to be identified. And, and, and I, 
uh, honestly think, and I, I would give this advice to the lawyers he has now, given his financial forecast, they better get paid now because <laughs> his diminishing uh, uh, abilities of this uh, 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 this defendant of theirs or this client of theirs. So if I was any of his lawyers on the plane with him, they better write a check before he cannot write one because he, uh, no matter how you estimate it, he's facing a real problem financially. Uh, April, uh, to you. I just enjoyed what Reverend Al said about your fire. That's it. The Apprentice. And now the roles are reversed to watch those who support him to either say, hmm, I'm not sure. And those independents who are on the fence to say, maybe not. It's happening yeah. now and we're watching this in real time. And Reverend Al, you let might be right. saying you're fired. Yeah, he, uh, let, let me just very quickly before we let you go. Nikki Haley did post on X a minute ago her reaction to this verdict. And she says Donald Trump wants to be the presumptive Republican nominee. And we're talking about $83 million in damages. We're not talking about fixing the border. We're not talking about tackling inflation. America can do better than Donald Trump. She also throws in Joe Biden. But zing, she was saying she wasn't even paying attention to the case earlier in the week. And all of a sudden, she's paying attention. Glenn Kirshner, April Ryan, the Reverend Al Sharpton, thank you very much. Up next, from being willing to be punched in the face to prove she hates Donald Trump to endorsing Trump for president, the strange journey of Congresswoman Nancy Mace and what it says about today's Republican Party. Stay with us. In recent weeks, the America First candidate, Donald Trump, has declared he wants the economy to fail and he doesn't want Republicans to solve what they claim is a crisis at the border. Yet the Republican Party has capitulated to him at an insane speed. Exhibit A, South Carolina Congresswoman Nancy Mace. For a while, she was staking her entire political identity on being an anti-Trump Republican maverick and a self-proclaimed new voice for the party. She made a big point of saying Trump had wiped out his legacy with January 6th and said he put their lives at risk, even though she voted to acquit him. Donald Trump responded by trying to end her career, endorsing her primary opponent and calling her a grandstanding loser and a rhino. So it's more than a little pathetic that this week, one day before the New Hampshire primary, Nancy Mace endorsed Donald Trump over Nikki Haley. By prostrating herself to the altar of MAGA ambition, she's a lot like fellow South Carolinian Tim Scott, just without the humiliating uh, dance around. But her recent conversion to MAGA is even more embarrassing if you look back at where she started this journey. The Washington Post reported that, quote, Mace was so angry at Trump during the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol that she discussed with aides the prospect of confronting the rioters so she could get punched and become the face of anti-Trump Republicans. According to former staffers familiar with the incident who spoke on the condition of anonymity out of fear of retribution. The Daily Beast also reported on the punch in the face account, noting that, according to three sources who heard the comments firsthand, Mace used those exact words. She wanted to go get punched in the face. One anonymous former aide said, quote, she literally begged us to let her leave the office and head to the floor so she could get punched in the face and get media attention. That's word for word what she requested. I'm joined now by Tim Miller, MSNBC political analyst and writer at large for The Bulwark. And Charles Blow, MSNBC political analyst and columnist for The New York Times. Tim Miller, it falls to you to explain the punch in the face, candidate Nancy Mace. 
Can I just say, we'll take anti-Trump Republicans where we can get them. I mean, there are very few of us, Joy. And so if she wants to go get punched in the face, well, she's welcome at the bulwark. We could find her a slot in the lineup. All right. The water is warm. Um, but unfortunately, and no I one will punch her in the face. Like, nobody will punch her in the face. We'll welcome her with open arms. Come on. <laughs> come on over to the Never Trump movement. Um, Look, I think that like many of these other folks, just in a more ostentatious manner, uh, she sees she saw where the wind was blowing you know, on this. And um, I think that a lot of these candidates uh, have made the decision that they did not want to fight a losing battle. Uh, back in 2016, uh, a lot of folks did, maybe not as much as many as I had hoped, but try to resist Trump and restrain Trump and fight him. Even Mike Lee, remember, on the convention floor, all the way to the convention floor, people were fighting him. Ted Cruz said, vote your conscience in his convention speech. Um, how'd that turn out for all of them? I think the lesson all of these cowards took was that there's no sense fighting this guy and that, um, you know, if you just get in the front of the line, maybe you can get the appointment that you want. And, and maybe if you're really lucky, you'll avoid the gallows the next time the people come to hang you. I, I don't know. I, I guess that's basically the decision they've all made. And that's why nobody endorsed Nikki Haley. Literally no one. She is a single member of the House of Representatives, no senators. And um, and Nancy Mace, I think, thinks that she might be on the shortlist for some Donald Trump gigs. <laughs> the thing about it is it's so bananas, uh, Charles Blow, is that you have all these people, including the very embarrassing uh, Tim Scott, uh, senator from South Carolina, auditioning for the job that Donald Trump tried to get the last guy who had the job hung. Why would anybody want the job where Donald Trump, if he becomes displeased, will urge his crowd to kill you? I think that we underestimate how addictive power is for some people. I think we live in a capitalist society. We understand people doing th anything for money. We, you know, we assign this idea of people doing anything for power to history books and maybe the ancient Romans were doing, you know, anything for power. No, this is a constant in, 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 a, in kind of human life. And it is showing up very prominently in the Republican Party right now. They're just doing anything for power. There are a lot of rich people in Congress, but many of them make their money before they get to Congress. There's not a lot of money in these jobs. What they have in these jobs is power. They get the cachet. They get the cameras in their face. People always want to be them. They get in the front of the line. They get to sit down. They get to be honored at events. That seems small and strange to many of us who would never give up our dignity for that. But for these people, they are addicted to that. That is, you know, we, we also forget sometimes that politics is a career. This is what they do for a living. Some of them may start as a lawyer or a business person, but then they become this is their only job. And the only way they yeah. can see to advance the Republican side is to cozy up to the guy who has taken over the Republican Party. Yeah, the, the, you know, fair point. Um, and one of the things that they're doing to cozy up to him is flirting with the idea that we should have a civil war uh, about the border. Uh, Donald Trump has now essentially called for a civil war. He's called for all willing states to send their National Guard soldiers to Texas. The governor of Texas is doing massive resistance, the modern day version of it, and saying, we're going to fight the federal government. We're not going to listen. Um, 25 Republican governors have backed Texas in essentially saying they're going to defy the federal government and continue to essentially try to operate federal law themselves. Look at where those states are, Tim. Most of those states are nowhere near the southern border. And yet they're all backing this idea, as many of them did when it came to the election in 2020, of essentially defying the federal government. Not essentially, actually. 
Yeah, Indiana's going to be sending troops to the border. That's inter- that's an interesting call um, for uh, for those National Guard folks. Uh, look, Joy, I anybody that spends time in the Republican fever swamps, uh, uh, which I do, unfortunately, has seen this the secession thing coming for a while. These folks are looking for an excuse. Obviously, the, the immigration thing, um, you know, I, I think that there's a, a legitimate uh, problem that that people could be suggesting legitimate policy solutions to on the border. Uh, that's not what this is right now. What they, what these guys are doing is using this to to make a threat that, that their most vocal supporters have been wanting to make. I mean, people have been talking about Texit. Uh, for a while now, you know, if you go into, you know, uh, uh, you know, the Daily Wire or some of these more far, even far more far right than that uh, conservative outlets, they talk about threatening secession. And I think that if, if the Democratic president was somebody, not Joe Biden, um, I, I think that we probably would have been seeing this earlier in the term. And one of the things that's coming, uh, Charles Blow, is something called Take Our Border Back Convoy. Um, noted this online today. And here is a pullout just of the text in this invitation. It says, calling all truckers, bikers, law enforcement, veterans, military, elected officials, business owners, ranches, and freedom-loving Americans. It's supposed to start in Virginia Beach on Monday. It's separate rallies on February 3rd near Eagle Pass, Texas, Yuma, Arizona, and San Isidro, California. They're saying it's supposed to be a peaceful convoy and uh, active sort of active activism. But the lineup of people sounds a lot like the lineup of people who are at January 6th. Right. Listen, as long as it's peaceful, I, I support people's uh, uh, right to protest. And if you don't like what's happening on the border, by all means, protest. As long as it's peaceful, right? But this idea that trying to spark some sort of civil war, that's a real problem. That's not that's not a small thing. Uh, and you know, and when you look at that map, you see a lot of places where there are very few people and that, you know, the, the places in between places are the places that are angry. They are the places where the power doesn't reside in the culture and therefore and, and, and they want to be separate from the places where it does reside in the culture. The biggest universities are not there. The biggest uh, cities are not there. They feel overwhelmed, but you cannot, you know plan to break away from the United States just because you feel overwhelmed. You have to win the argument. And that is where they are failing. Yeah, I think a lot of people forget that the, the what originally sparked uh, the notion of civil war was the was an election. It was the election of Abraham Lincoln, who the slave owning South, slave holding South did not want to be the president of the United States because they feared he'd take away their money making human bondage industry. Tim Miller, Charles Blow, thank you very much. Up next, the World Court delivers a preliminary finding on South Africa's accusation that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza. What it could mean for besieged Palestinians next. Major news out of The Hague today as the United Nations top court, the International Court of Justice, ordered Israel to take all measures within its power to prevent acts of genocide against Palestinians in Gaza. The court ruled that while they consider the case of genocide brought by South Africa, a process that could take years, Israel must in the meantime prevent the commission of all acts of genocide by its forces, punish the direct and public incitement to commit genocide by politicians and other public figures, allow humanitarian aid to the Palestinians, prevent the destruction of any evidence related to the case, and submit a report by next month outlining how it is implementing the court's orders. The court stopped short of ordering a full ceasefire, which is what South Africa was asking for. 
but they also did not throw out the court's case entirely as called for by Israel. Meaning, what the panel of judges effectively ruled is that when it comes to accusations of genocide, there is a case to be heard. Besides having major implications for Israelis and Palestinians, this is also a big moment for South Africa, and frankly, the global South as a whole, who after decades of feeling unappreciated by the UN, is defining its place on the world stage, standing up not just to Israel, but to the United States and to other Western superpowers. Joining me now is Akbar Shahid Ahmed, senior diplomatic correspondent for the Huffington Post. Welcome to the show, uh, Akbar. I've been wanting to have you on. Give me your assessment as somebody who has some expertise in this area of how big of a deal this ruling is. Thanks so much for having me, Joy. And I'll say as someone with expertise and also someone who grew up in the global south, this is a huge moment. There is such global frustration and frankly confusion over four months in President Biden having not changed course as the death toll in Gaza has increased, as allegations of war crimes have come in. So for people who have been alarmed by this and have felt, you talk to us about human rights, about the international rules-based order when it came to Ukraine, what about brown people in Palestine? This is a huge moment. I'd say the judgment is also really important in that it says Palestinians in Gaza are a protected group, which is really important because there's a lot of denialism over the idea that Palestinians are a group at all. The court has essentially said that's not true. And I think for Israel and the US, what this essentially says is they are going to be facing charges of genocide for years to come, right? They are going to be publicly and legally associated with this, which is a huge burden to bear. And especially for Israel, a state founded in the shadow of the Holocaust, it's a deeply emotional and, and kind of tragic moment. Let me read just some of the reactions. The State Department said, quote, um, a State Department spokesman said in the ICJ ruling, it's inconsistent with its own calls for Israel to minimize, or is consistent, sorry, with the U.S.'s own calls for Israel to minimize civilian harm, increase humanitarian assistance, and address dehumanizing rhetoric. The spokesperson reiterated that accusations of genocide are in the, are in the U.S.'s uh, belief unfounded. Here's an, a react from Israel. Um, in a post on X, Israel's right-wing security minister, Itamar Ben-Gavir, who folks have come to know for some of his outrageous statements, his reaction was two words, Haig Schmeig. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think that's that's really a nice summation of the problem here for the Biden administration and for a lot of allies of Israel. I mean, the U.S. has said it is indisputable. The president has said it, Secretary of State Tony Blinken has said for months now, we would like to see Israel kill fewer civilians. We would love to see more aid. But the reality, Joy, that former U.S. aid officials have said, current officials, sources of mine who are inside the government have said, is that nothing has changed because the U.S. hasn't actually in any tangible way changed its support for Israel. And in the absence of that kind of change, you are seeing an Israeli government that, frankly, speaks out of both sides of its mouth, right? So Prime Minister Netanyahu did say Israel respects international law, we will abide by this. But on the other hand, you have Itmar Ben-Gavir, you have other far-right members of his cabinet. And there is tragically, especially if you look at the ICJ ruling, given the situation for Gazans, there is no indication or hint from Israel today that they have taken this to heart and they are feeling, okay, starting tomorrow, this operation will have to be more humane, which is why we are seeing calls for action at the UN kind of building on this ICJ ruling. 
If this then goes to the Security Council and uh, the U.S. is required to decide whether to abstain or accept a ruling, because Europe is very much feels bound by international law and is going to be very it's going to be very uncomfortable if there had to be a vote on whether to essentially order Israel to abide by this ruling. Do you have an indication just from your sources? How does what does the U.S. do? It's a nightmare situation for the U.S., Choi, and one of their own creation. I, I've been talking to sources at the U.N., on the U.S. government side about this all day, and it's looking increasingly likely that this will come to a U.N. Security Council vote. Algeria, which is the Arab state on the council, has already set up a meeting for Jan 31st. That's Wednesday. And it's important to remember they are not a close U.S. ally like a lot of Arab countries. They are historically pro-Palestinian, and there's a lot of countries who are frustrated, not just Arab states. France, which is on the Security Council and is currently the president of the Security Council, has called for a ceasefire. Britain has slowly moved closer and closer to calling for a ceasefire. And one of the implications, uh, to your point that Europeans care a lot about international law, one of the implications of this ICJ ruling is it's not just about prevent genocide, assist aid. It is you are legally you as an American yeah. official, British official, French official could face consequences yourself. So there's a risk there. Uh, it is fascinating. I would love for you to come back, Akbar Shahid Ahmed, because I really want to also talk about South Africa and its growing leadership role uh, in the global South. So thank you so much for being here. And hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. And coming up next, Alabama's use of a controversial new method of execution left a condemned man writhing and convulsing for four agonizing minutes before he was declared dead. Stay with us. The state of Alabama has carried out the first known execution with nitrogen gas in the U.S. Last night, inmate Kenneth Smith was put to death for the murder-for-hire killing of Elizabeth Sennett in 1988. Smith's spiritual advisor, the Reverend Jeff Hood, was allowed to remain in the execution room to give Smith his last rites before the mask was affixed to his face. This is what the Reverend said about what he saw. We didn't see someone go unconscious in two or three seconds. We didn't see somebody go unconscious in 30 seconds. What we saw was minutes of someone struggling for their life. We saw minutes of someone heaving back and forth. We saw spit. We saw all sorts of stuff from his mouth develop on the mask. We saw this mask tied to the gurney and him ripping his head forward over and over and over again. Alabama approved the use of nitrogen hypoxia for executions in 2018. Given that our primary method of killing people under the color of law, lethal injection, has become increasingly difficult due to a shortage of the necessary drugs. The shortage is due to pharmaceutical companies blocking their drugs from being used in executions. The United Nations Human Rights Chief condemned this new form of execution, saying the method could amount to torture. Lee Hedgepath, an investigative reporter who witnessed the execution, told MSNBC's Jose Diaz Balart that out of the five executions he has witnessed, last night's was the most violent. And that is tonight's readout. 